Welcome to Thinking Ahead, your leading edge insights podcast. Each episode reveals the latest insights on today's consumers and offers a sneak peek of tomorrow's marketplace. Stop guessing what's next and start thinking ahead. Hello, and welcome back to Thinking Ahead, a GFK Insights podcast. I'm Hannah, your host, and for today's episode, we are exploring an extremely relevant uh, topic during the holiday season and one of my personal favorite activities. Uh, We're talking about shopping. Now, joining us today is Joe Beyer, Executive Vice President here at GFK and one of our leading experts when it comes to shopping trends. Joe recently did a presentation on the many changes we have seen in how consumers shop, and he is here today to give us some more insight so that we can prepare ourselves as companies and brands to accommodate shoppers both this holiday season and as we enter the new year. Welcome, Joe. Hey, glad to be here, Hannah. Thanks for having me in. Of course. Now, besides the obvious fact, which is online shopping is very popular and it has risen this year due to the pandemic, what else can you tell us about the trend? Yeah, there's some interesting things going on kind of beneath the surface of that trend uh, and any number you look at is kind of coming out to estimates for 2020 that online shopping will be up in the neighborhood of 30 to 40%. So a pretty big bump. It had been rising by about 10% a year. So really an acceleration of that trend is what we're seeing during the pandemic. And so that's very clear and obvious, but there's some things going on underneath that that are interesting. You know, one is that it's really led to um, a big surge in some uh, alternative fulfillment methodologies, particularly click and collect. Uh, click and collect is surging uh, mul- multiple uh, times its original rate, particularly at retailers like Walmart, Target, uh, retailers that had really put a lot of infrastructure in place already, even pre-pandemic, to to uh, really boost their click and collect sales. Uh, the pandemic has put that into overdrive, to say the least, and those retailers are seeing amazing growth through that click and collect uh, fulfillment methodology. And a lot of people are doing curbside as well because there's obviously energy not to have to go into a store. So the drive up and put it in my trunk model with that people are getting exposed to now is really, really popular. People really love it. And we expect it to kind of stick around uh, after the trend as well or after the crisis, I should say. So that's one. And the other, another one that's interesting for us is this um, kind of blending of entertainment and commerce. And we're seeing it in one obvious way through the rise of shopping and actually not just shopping, but buying on social media platforms. So shoppable posts um, and also shoppable TV is starting to perk up again. It's not brand new, but it's getting some new energy. And we think that the fact that people are living online more as well as just consuming more media through things like Netflix and other streaming services is kind of creating the perfect storm for this blurring between what had been distinct entertainment and shopping silos are now coming together increasingly. Yeah. Wow. So there's clearly a lot of different things happening in here and I can't wait to get into all of it. Just to start off, you mentioned a couple of retailers that have really started to benefit for things like click and collect. Um, When you're looking at digital mediums, Uh, Can you name a few of the categories that are really benefiting from online shopping versus others? Yeah, I mean, I think the categories that are benefiting from from online shopping are really the categories that are just benefiting from increased demand in general. Um, You know, things like consumer electronics, you know, 
I remember when this thing started, it took three months to find a webcam. You know, everybody's trying to outfit their home. So if you're in any of those consumer electronics spaces, you're doing great. Uh, Best Buy has obviously been one of the big, you know, beneficiaries of that. Uh, all the way down to more consumable stuff. You know, we, uh, we're seeing real surges in, you know, any category related to um, perceived benefits to immunity. Uh, so, you know, vitamins, minerals, uh, nutritional supplements, those are all going gangbusters as people are attempting to provide some insulation and some protection from the virus by taking better care of their health and also boosting their immune systems. And then food in general has seen a nice bump too. Uh, grocery has benefited dramatically from more cook at home trending, right? So the loss on the restaurant side has kind of been the gain on the side of packaged food and beverage. And so those categories are doing famously well uh, as well. So it's been... Um, you know, it's kind of depending. It's a little bit of a, a luck of the draw. You know, certain businesses have been decimated, like travel. You know, auto has been hit, hit pretty badly. Uh, and then others, like some of the ones I mentioned, have really uh, are really booming. <laughs> so it's an interesting uh, factor. It just depends on where you were kind of positioned prior to everything starting to go crazy at the beginning of the year. Right. I definitely think just trying to take in all of those different categories that you just mentioned, it kind of sounds like it's a lot of the day-to-day lives or life items, which makes sense because everyone's trying to figure out the new normal. Now, in your recent presentation that you did, you talked about two interesting shopping trends that are gaining popularity, transactions directly through social media and shoppable TV. Now, what is the big advantage for social media shopping capabilities over using your website's e-commerce pages? Well, there's two things that respondents told us when we asked them about actually doing their transactions on social media sites. Um, By the way, we see about a quarter of respondents telling us that they've done this in the last six months. And we saw a huge jump in activity of this nature among generation uh, Z or post-millennials, as they're sometimes called the youngest generation. So this is taking hold in the shopping population in general. But particularly being ushered in by those youngest shoppers, which makes sense. I mean, they're used to living online and that's a very familiar ecosystem for them. Um, But to answer your question directly, the benefits that respondents talk to us about in the realm of social media transacting, uh, one is it's fun. It's more fun for them typically than uh, just going to a brand's website or going to an Amazon and making a purchase. And that makes sense because these are the spaces where their friends are also on and, you know, having those interactions is a lot more fun than just going to a, a drab website. And they also like the fact that they get uh, very good recommendations and ideas from their social uh, connections on those platforms. So they get recommendations that they really appreciate for, you know, products and services that they can then turn around and buy immediately. So there used to be a little bit of a you know a lag between the, the the seeding of the desire and the fulfillment of the desire in the shopping context, and now that almost collapses into one singular event if you're doing that on social media and actually buying on social media as well. So uh, a very interesting sort of a compression of that previous gap is is what we're seeing there. So that's what's happening on social media, and then you mentioned shoppable TV as well. And the interesting thing there is that there's Shoppable ads have been around for some time, but what's starting to emerge as everyone is aware of the difficulty of getting folks to sit through standard TV ads now with 
such a capability to fast forward through. Uh, they're starting to uh, create capabilities that the actual content can contain shoppable items. So if you're watching a tennis match and you happen to like the shirt that Rafael Nadal is wearing, uh, you can click on that shirt and, and be able to transact and buy that shirt in real time as you're kind of watching the event. Those capabilities aren't broadly distributed now, but they're kind of in development and being tested in various platforms. And that's kind of the longer term vision of where we think shoppable TV is going to end up. Less about shoppable ads um, and more about shoppable uh, live content. Yeah, I definitely see a few trends in there that I've um, talked about on previous episodes, including like user experience when it comes to the social media, not having to click through so many times so it's easier to make that purchase. And the shoppable TV, I mean, that is just some really really interesting technology. It's going to be really, really cool to see where that goes. Now, in terms of the social media, I wonder, um, just from uh, discussing influencers and the power of influencers in the past, uh, has it created a richer market for them in terms of, you know, marketers coming to them to do more paid ads? It's, I believe it's in the process of doing that, you know, as we speak. I think the the benefit... And I don't know to what extent influencer, influencers have started to leverage this, but if you think about the ability to now transact on a social media site, uh, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for, for greater and more specific attribution. So now everyone's trying to figure out attribution in the regular ad world and in the old model, influencers probably had some sense that they were creating a purchase downstream from their point of influence but it was a little bit of conjecture in terms of how much their messaging mattered in the final purchase versus all the other things that could have been in the shopper's mind, right? By the time they made the ultimate purchase, you know, three days later or on a different site. <clears throat> now, now with the transaction being so adjacent to the point of influence, that attribution can be made with a much higher level of confidence. And one would suspect that influencers will be smart enough to leverage that in terms of figuring out, um, you know, what they want to, uh, what, what compensation they want for creating the, uh, the influencing touch points uh, for the ultimate benefit of the brand or the product that uh, benefits from the transaction. So I think that'll make influencers, um, you know, more savvy and also probably better compensated where that attribution can be made more, more specifically. Right. That makes sense. It'll be interesting to see, you know, because one of the big things about uh, influencer trends that people look for others who are authentic and real. So it'll be interesting to see how that works with paid ads. Yeah, absolutely. And that's always kind of been the balance, right? As to how to, I think most people kind of know that a lot of influencer activity is sponsored to some degree, but it, you know, it still maintains the veneer of, of objectivity, I guess, and independence and authenticity in a lot of cases, which the folks that kind of strike that balance, I think, are the ones that have had the most, you know, the most success. And I think people are still going to want that authenticity and people are still going to move away from messaging that's overtly commercial. I mean, we know that's true, not just in the influencer space, but just in the whole uh, brand space in general. You know, consumers in the general brand space are very much concerned that their brands be authentic, that their brands that they deal with are um reflective of their individual values, that brands are behaving themselves well. We've seen a real bit big spike in this notion of uh, 
shoppers watching brands closely now in the uh, period of COVID to see how they're behaving and also making decisions about how they want to deal with these brands or if they want to deal with these brands once COVID is over. So they've kind of got the yardstick out and they're taking measure of their brand's behaviors and seeding that as, you know, some decisions about who they want to play with going forward. So those benefits of authenticity and being genuine are every bit as important in the social media space as in, I think, the brand space in general. Right. How can a brand make sure that they're being, quote, a force for good versus appearing as if they're taking advantage of the crisis at hand? Yeah, that's a tricky one, too. Um, It's actually pretty basic. We've done some work, some survey work to ask essentially that question and a couple things kind of pop up on the list. Excuse me. One of them is people really want to make sure in the case of retailers, at least, and, and more broadly, but that, that these companies are taking good care of their people, right? They really are concerned about uh, worker welfare, uh, you know, both safety and fairness in terms of treatment. And that goes for you know, brands as well as retailers, but it's particularly germane to retailers during this crisis, of course. Um, so that's a big one. They want to make sure that they're keeping their shoppers safe, right? When you go to a retail store, when you get brave enough to actually venture into a retail environment, you want to be sure that you're going to be well cared for there. So that's a force for good rallying point as well. And also they want to see you um, not taking advantage of uh, pricing opportunities. So to not be raising prices opportunistically to control prices, to continue to offer the same promotions that were offered before, to kind of recognize the fact that a lot of your consumers are now in tougher economic straits than they were before and to recognize that and to act accordingly in market to either reduce prices or at a minimum not raise prices to be uh, taking advantage of people when they're at a vulnerable point. So that's kind of an economic one that is huge as well. So those are some of the things that we, um, we think that the leading brands will be doing. And then there's also kind of the, the bigger the bigger efforts. You know, Walmart, I think, has just dedicated very publicly about 25 or $30 million to help their you know, frontline workers and all kinds of other programs. You can go up and down the board. <clears throat> Harry's, I think, the, um, the uh, male grooming DTC brand has offered, um, I guess, free over-the-phone free counseling to people that are struggling with uh, you know, mental health challenges during the crisis and isolation. So it can be just something as simple as reducing a price or holding a price. It can be something um, that's more of a lay on extra, like a big donation, a big public donation to uh, a group in need or, you know, even just sort of a caring gesture like the Harry's one uh, and, and anywhere in between. So those are some of the things we're seeing under the force for good banner. All right. Now, Shifting a little bit back into specifically how people are buying, uh, there is one big problem that I know you mentioned in your presentation you did earlier, um, and that was return rates, this incredibly high rate of return that people are now doing. So yeah, most of the shift online is, uh, you know, good news in a lot of cases, and you know, all the retailers like to stand up at the analyst meetings and brag about their audacious growth numbers in the online space. And rightfully so, you know, they've done a lot of good things to earn those numbers. And 
the uh, pandemic has certainly uh, given them huge topspin there. But one of the one of the things that's not such a happy event attached to that is the return rates that you're describing. Um, depending on what study you want to look at, it's pretty well understood that the rate of return on an item that's purchased in a brick and mortar store tends to range in the five to ten percent rate area, whereas that same product purchased online is looking at a return rate of anywhere between 15 and 40 percent. And if you drill down into some specific categories like apparel, for example, is a really big offender in that department and their numbers are in the 30 to 40 percent range. So, you know, think about that almost almost four in 10 items that gets apparel items that get sold online are coming back at some point. And of course, the whole um, subscription model, right, has kind of created this whole uh, band of shoppers that are buying that are overbuying intentionally, right? They they're buying the eight pairs of jeans and then they they're rolling the dice that two will fit right online. So, but fully intending to return the other eight. So it is a big problem and it's a problem that grows every year with more and more online sales. And it's a problem that the industry is kind of struggling with. There's a whole industry, kind of a third party industry of um, kind of logistics players that are trying to help retailers get a better handle on it. But it's hard because as you know, as a, you know, as a consumer, you really want to deal with retailers and with brands that have very liberal and open returns policies. You want a confidence that if you buy something that's not quite right, it's not going to be a hassle to bring it back. So it's not as simple as brands just saying, we're not going to take your stuff back or retailers saying that. It's really more about how do you still appear to have open policies, but do it in a way that's a little more managed from an economic standpoint. What about other shopper phenomena such as accidental trials due to stock outages? Uh, is this a huge problem or it was a huge problem when the pandemic first began? Is it still a huge problem? Yeah, it is. It's actually growing again. And, uh, you know, a lot of that we think has to do with the re the re-spiking or the phase two spiking of the pandemic that we're in the middle of right now. So We've kind of seen the return of some empty shelves in different categories, the kind of the predictable ones, uh, cleaning, you know, cleaning products, paper products, those kinds of things. Even some food items have been hard to keep in stock. So, yeah, it's every bit as real as it was at the beginning of the of the crisis. And what's interesting to us about it is that it's going to have some staying power. So the um, the survey that we did around this topic, about a third of the folks told us that they're going to stick with some of these new brand relationships that they formed because they were unable to get their original choice on their first shopping trip. So it certainly is the case that a lot of folks that, you know, usually buy bounty paper towels and went to the store and couldn't find them and had to buy sparkle paper towels will return to buying bounty paper towels when they become in stock again. But there's also a a band of people, and this is about 30% of shoppers who had to switch to sparkle paper towels and like sparkle paper towels very much, thank you. And we'll keep buying sparkle paper towels on repeat purchases, even though Bounty is back in stock. So the um, the phenomenon has a long tail in terms of potentially shifting some of those longer term brand relationships and also moving some share points around in some of those categories that are affected. And those tend to be categories that are pretty well-established, mature, and pretty slow-growth categories. So even shifting, you know, three, four, five share points in those categories is huge. It has huge implications 
for the performance of these brands. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not trivial. So we think that it's sort of an interesting thing that happened strictly accidentally and now is going to really create some new brand relationships that are going to be sticking around. Right. It's really interesting. I also love the paper towel analogy. Now, what should a retailer do if they see the threat or the opportunity, depending on which retailer that you are, um, if you suspect that there's accidental trials happening in your category? Yeah. Well, I'm going to back up even further to your question, which is the first thing you have to do is stay in stock. I know easier said than done, but if you think about the whole issue of accidental trial, it cannot hurt you if you never go out of stock in the first place. So for God's sakes, get it right in terms of staying in stock. And one of the things that we're seeing manufacturers and retailers doing to try to achieve that goal is the, a pretty pronounced streamlining of assortments. So they've realized that they get into trouble with accidental trial when they're really big, big skews. The codes that do, you know, 80% of their volume are, are getting cut and are out of stock. And that's where they're really getting hurt on an accidental trial basis. So what they've done is they've kind of said, we're going to trim out the tails here. You know, we're going to get rid of this set of items that we have that's doing, you know, 4% of our volume. And we're going to assume we're going to pick up that volume again in the main, the main SKUs that we've got here. And so they're using more streamlined and more kind of agile assortments to help stay in stock better. So that's step one. Um, you know, beneath that, if you do see accidental trial going on, then you need to drill into it analytically and, you know, understand whether you're benefiting from accidental trial or whether you're being hurt by it, kind of what you, the way you phrased your question and, and who you're trading share with. And the, and once you understand that landscape, then we, you know, we suggest to our clients that they gear up their um, um, shopper marketing toolbox and, uh, you know, innovate appropriately. Is it, you know, do you want to put coupons on to lower your price if you're worried about, you know, losing some share longer term to some of these uh, challenger brands, uh, you know, do you want to shift your mix advertising wise? Do you want to innovate in certain spaces? So if you, you know, are you being, um, are you, is, is the product that people are buying instead of you because of certain uh, product attributes that you don't have? Do you need to innovate to hold that better? So it, it has implications as sort of a planning um, architecture for a lot of what you do to support your business in, in market. And again, it depends on whether you're on kind of the receiving or the or the, or the gaining end in terms of share, uh, what you might do there tactically. Right. I think accidental trials could be an entire different discussion because there's just so much about it that's just really interesting. Well, it is interesting. And, the you know, I, I for many years worked in brand marketing. And when you would put together your brand plans, you know, you often working on new products as I did, you spent millions of dollars on trial, you know, <laughs> setting up whatever it was, mailing it out or having it in Costco at the food booth, you know, whatever it was. And in a way, it's a weird, it's sort of a marketer's dream what's going on right now, right? If you're one of the challengers brands, like you're, you're being handed this massive amount of trial, assuming again, you're the brand that's in stock and not the one that's out. But, you know, and, and so we're, we're encouraging our clients to really take advantage of that, like strike while the iron's hot. I mean, this is something that normally costs you millions of dollars and you're getting it dropped in your lap by this weird circumstance. So absolutely jump on it and run. Now, uh, I have one last question just to close out the whole discussion, Joe, and that is thinking ahead. What are the biggest shopping trends to watch in the new coming year? Yeah, well, it's hard. It's a little tricky, obviously, given that we don't know when and if this thing's going to be over in terms of the, the, the crisis. But I think there's some things that we're seeing 
even taking shape, some of the things I've even talked about here already that we think are going to have a lot of stickiness, a lot of staying power as we kind of go into the into the next cycle, whatever that ends up being. Um, you know, we talked about this the streamlining and the simplification that's going on. You know, we think that's going to be something that's going to have a lot of staying power. We know that shoppers are in of like mind with retailers and manufacturers on that point because we know that they're feeling overwhelmed by choice in a lot of their categories. So when both shoppers, retailers, and uh, brands agree on something, it tends to stick around, which we think is going to happen in this kind of streamlined assortment uh, world. So we think that's definitely going to be something we're going to be looking at for a long time. We talked early on about click and collect and convenience of fulfillment. You know, we think that's going to continue to accelerate. And a lot of the people that have um, jumped on that in this immediate crisis are going to continue to do it even as things loosen up. So that's one that's big too. The other one, one of the other ones we haven't talked a lot about, but we have a lot of energy for is, is a voice in shopping. Um, it's very, it's very preliminary stages now, but we think with more people being home and, you know, the whole, um, smart speaker installed base is mainly in people's homes and people looking for more and more convenient ways to shop. Um, we think that that is going to be kind of an up and coming area as well. And, and we're starting to see in some early prototypes in some Amazon stores, for example, uh, their grocery, newest grocery concept, they're using uh, smart speakers throughout the, the store floor as well. So we think smart speakers are kind of ready to make a pretty big splash in the world of shopping. There needs to be some infrastructure developed to enable that, but we think that's going to be a hot area as well going forward to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, as you say that, I actually am just thinking about the last month or two. I've definitely been getting more reminders or notifications from my smart home speaker letting me know that you're probably out of this toothpaste you bought there you go. two months ago. Would you like to reorder? So I, it's already happening. Perfect example. You're always a trendsetter, Hannah. <laughs> always. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for being here. Um, if anyone is interested to watch that presentation that Joe did just a few weeks ago, or just to get more information, some more visuals about everything we've spoken about here today, I'm going to leave a link for that presentation in the podcast description. So you can just click on through there to get even more insights on the shopping trends for this holiday season and for the coming year. Also, just make sure that you are rating and reviewing the podcast. We'd love to hear from you, hear how we're doing, hear what you like to hear from us and hit that subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Thanks again, Joe. Thank you. And now our closing segment, listen to this, where we'll share some fun facts pulled from our studies across GFK. As technology continues to advance, artificial intelligence is being integrated into consumers' daily lives. Listen to this. 53% of consumers globally find that AI has improved their efficiency at work. On the other hand, in the world of health, 56% of global consumers also find it appealing to have AI or computerized doctors who can help diagnose health issues, pointing the way to the future of healthcare. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Thinking Ahead. For more information on today's topic, click the link in the description. We'll see you next time so you can keep thinking ahead.